Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing 15,000 Miles in a Catch by Captain Raymond Rallier de Batty, published in 1922. We're on part four, and we're continuing chapter three. Now, if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner, and there for $5 a month, you can help support the podcast. Now on with the story. Chapter 3 continued. The Tristan da Cunha Islands are part of a long submarine range which divides the floor of the Atlantic Ocean. This range, or ridge, is studded with volcanoes. Those of Tristan, St. Helena, Ascension and St. Paul have been extinct for thousands of years, while Tenerife and the Azores are slumbering, and those in Iceland are still in an active state. The Tristan group seems to have been discovered early in the 16th century by the gallant Portuguese navigators, and the first mention of them, as far as we know, was in a letter dated August 1506 from Pedro Corismo to the King of Portugal, in which he says that he has gone to Mozambique to wait for his friend Tristeo de Cunha. In other Portuguese works, the name is spelt Tristan de Cunha, so that I suppose that is the correct spelling of the island, and not the Tristan de Cunha that is often written. It is interesting to me to know that the first man to land on Tristan was a Frenchman named Decheverry in a boat called the Morning Star in 1767. Seven years before, however, an English seaman named Captain Gamaliel Nightingale visited Nightingale Island, to which he gave his own name. Some seal hunters in a boat called the Industry with Captain John Patton were the first human beings to inhabit Tristan for a time. They landed in August 1790 and stayed there till the following April, during which time they obtained no less than 5,000 seal skins, which they sold in the China market at an enormous profit. At the beginning of the 19th century, a man named Thomas Curie landed on Tristan and lived like Robinson Crusoe, though he had no man Friday, until he was joined by a strange being called Captain Jonathan Lambert, accompanied by a man named Williams, who is described as late of Salem, of the United States of America, mariner and citizen thereof. On the 7th of February 1811, he was pleased to constitute himself a sovereign power and took absolute possession of the islands of Tristan de Cunha, so-called, namely the Great Island, and other two known by the names of Inaccessible and Nightingale Islands, solely and for his heirs forever, grounding my right and claim on the rational and sure ground of absolute occupancy. He determined that the said islands shall for the future be denominated the Islands of Refreshment, the great island bearing that name in particular, and the landing place on the north to the east of the Cascade, where I had been met by Repetto and his friends, to be called Reception, which shall be my place of residence. Captain Lambert further enlightened the world by explaining that the cause of the said act originated in the desire and determination of preparing myself and family a home where I can enjoy life without the embarrassments which have constantly attended me and procure for us an interest and property by means of which a competence may be forever secured and remain, if possible, far removed beyond the reach of chicanery and ordinary misfortune. All these noble aspirations were doomed to be forever unfulfilled, and no little Lamberts played about the refreshment islands. For one bad day, the American went out fishing with his man Williams, 
and never returned to what he was pleased to call his sovereign international state. Curie remained king of all he surveyed, but in May of 1815 he was joined by two men named John Tankard and John Tulson, who came off from a ship called the Bengal Merchant. They were of an agricultural turn of mind and cultivated wheat and oats and sundry vegetables with success and bred pigs from wild stock descended from a few swine left by a passing vessel. During the American War of 1812-1815, to the United States used Tristan as a base from which to pounce out on British sailing ships, homeward bound, and it was this which first brought those islands under the official notice of the English government. In September 1815, they were taken over as dependencies of the Cape of Good Hope in the name of King George III, and were garrisoned by a young lieutenant named Rich, in command of a lieutenant of marines, four midshipmen, and thirteen men. They kept themselves busy in their exile by work and sport, building huts, cutting down trees, fishing and seal hunting, until they were relieved by a detachment from the Cape of Good Hope garrison, consisting of four officers, three non-commissioned officers, and thirty-four rank and file of the 21st Light Dragoons, 60th and 72nd Regiments, all under command of Captain Abraham Josias Cloet of the 21st Light Dragoons, a young officer of considerable talent and acquirements and in every respect trustworthy. At this time, the only residents on the island apart from the troops were Thomas Curie and a Spaniard named Bastiano Comilla. The Englishman had no objection to the island becoming a British possession, especially as no encroachment was made on his own ground of seven acres. Captain Cloet was an energetic fellow and built forts to command the entrance to Falmouth Bay and Exmouth Bay, and a road leading up from the beach to his camp which was on the site of the present settlement. All this work was rendered futile by the decision of Lord Bathurst in 1817 to withdraw the garrisons on the island. The object in stationing troops there at all was to keep a sharp lookout for any French adventurers who might attempt to rescue Napoleon from St Helena, but the truth was that the soldiers at Tristan were about as much use for that purpose as if they had been in Piccadilly. A few men preferred to remain when the garrison left, and those were joined by other people who landed or were wrecked upon the island. For example, in December 1820, three more were wrecked on Tristan from the Sarah, and in July 1821, the crew of the Blendon Hall were cast upon Inaccessible Island, from which they were rescued by an old corporal named Glass, who had remained with his wife and children on the departure of the troops. In 1826, there were seven men and two children living together on this desolate island, and five women were fetched from St Helena to marry the five bachelors. Among these early inhabitants of Tristan were the two men who had given their names to so many descendants now living there. Cotton, an old man of warsman who for three years had stood guard over Napoleon at Longwood, and Swain, who had served on board the Victory, and into whose arms Nelson fell, mortally wounded by the shot from the French battleship. In 1836, Peter William Green, a native of Amsterdam, was cast ashore at Tristan, and when Glass and Cotton died, he became the leading man in the island. So the years passed and the families of the first settlers grew up and married among themselves and had families of their own. Occasionally, they were reinforced by some involuntary visitor cast up with the wreckage of a good ship and rejoiced to find such friendly help stretched out to him. Gradually, he came to regard the island as his home, taking one of the women for his wife and losing all desire to get back to civilization when a passing ship put the opportunity 
within his grasp. In 1867, the Duke of Edinburgh visited the island, and henceforth the settlement was called by his name. So the history of Tristan may be written, and almost each chapter is a tale of shipwreck. The people's blood became mixed by descent from sailors of several races, English, Dutch, Scandinavian, Spanish, Italian and French, so that, as I have said, the original strength of the women of St Helena was not predominant. When the Challenger expedition touched at Tristan in 1873 and surveyed the coasts, the population numbered 84, and although sometimes this was increased by new births and sometimes almost wiped out by an occasional exodus of the younger folk who went to the Cape of Good Hope or elsewhere, it was almost the exact number of souls still living on Tristan when I visited them in 1907. I learned from Mr. Barrow, the clergyman, that when Joseph Chamberlain was the English colonial minister, an offer was made to the islanders to remove them from their isolated position and convey them at the government's expense to the Cape of Good Hope. It was put before them by a commissioner named Mr. Took, conveyed to Tristan by the Odin, by Commander Pierce. They were given 24 hours in which to make up their minds, and after much discussion, three families decided that it would be a good thing to leave. Seven families decided to remain, and one family was neutral and did not vote. In consequence of this, Mr. Took withdrew the offer of the government. The offer in any case seemed to me a little strange, for it appears to me unnecessary to tempt people away from a little commonwealth in which, as I can personally testify, they seem contented and cheerful, and where they are able to render most valuable assistance to those unfortunate vessels which so often come to grief on their surf-beaten rocks. Since my visit, I have been interested to hear that in the report of a British naval officer who called at the island in the Thrush in 1903, the suggestion has been made that should a large carrying trade be established between South America and the Cape, that the island would be of value as an intermediate station for wireless telegraphy. It will certainly be a remarkable change if that suggestion is ever carried out, for whereas at present the Tristan Islanders are entirely without news of the world, except when stray facts are told to them by vessels which happen to pass their way, they would then be in daily communication with the great, throbbing life in the centres of civilization. Perhaps it would disturb that perfect tranquillity of mind which at present prevails in Tristan de Cunha. Mr. Barrow, the clergyman, gave me some interesting details of his life on the island. The people welcomed them most warmly and were delighted at the visit of the new chaplain and his wife. They at once set apart a house as church and school. A widow named Lucy Green, whose husband was a descendant of the Amsterdam mariner who had been shipwrecked there in 1836, turned out of her little dwelling place and went to live with relatives. Another woman, Betty Cotton, gave up her house for the clergyman and his wife to use as their own. The seventeen families on the island took it in turn to supply their pastor weekly with meat, milk, potatoes and firewood, and whenever possible with fish, butter and eggs. The winter after Mr Barrow's arrival was a hard one, and the potato stock ran short owing to the crops being blighted by the wind. They also lost a great number of their livestock, no fewer than 371 cattle having died of starvation from June to November of that year. In the time of the last chaplain, Mr. Dodgson, the brother, I am told, of Mr. Lewis Carroll, who wrote a famous book called Alice in Wonderland, there was a plague of rats which threatened to destroy the whole population by eating up all their sustenance. They came to Tristan on a schooner called the Henry B. Paul, which was run ashore on the far side of the island, four miles away from cultivated ground. 
the islanders ignored the clergyman's plea that these ship rats should be at once exterminated, believing that they would not give trouble as they were so far away. In the course of a few months, however, during which they bred tremendously, the vanguard of an army of rats appeared among the potato fields and devoured everything on their march. Then, with reinforcements, they turned to the wheat fields and devoured the corn. With relentless ferocity, they next attacked the rabbits, which were also prolific in the island, and waxed fat upon their prey. Now they invaded the settlement itself and seemed to have no fear of the human inhabitants, who, on their side, had become panic-stricken. It reminds one of the Pied Piper of Hamelin. Grey rats, brown rats, fathers and mothers, uncles and cousins, fat old fellows and frisky youngsters come in battalions to the houses of the Tristan folk, scrambling over the stone walls, into the tussock gardens and the cattle pens, getting into the lumber sheds and invading the front parlours and the back bedrooms of the stone-built cottages. On one occasion, when Mr. Dodgson was going to bed, he saw what he imagined to be his black kitten on the bed, but putting out his hand to stroke it, found that his hand had touched the cold, hairy body of an enormous rat who had found his bed a comfortable resting place. Cats were imported into the island to exterminate this plague, but the rats exterminated the cats. At the present day, there are still a great number of rats on Tristan de Cunha, but the inhabitants say that they have dwindled in numbers and are no longer such a dangerous pest. Probably they have died out for want of food when they were beaten out of the settlement. Even now, however, the islanders are unable to grow grain on this account. The Tristan islanders are best described as farmers. The men spend their time tending their potato patches, felling trees and bringing wood in for fuel, shearing the sheep, tending the cattle and goats, fishing and making bullock-hide moccasins, which, on the sharp rocks of the island, last only a few weeks. The women and girls are busy with washing, cooking, mending, spinning, knitting, milking and churning. The cattle are, of course, the most important property of the islanders, being useful for their meat, hides, milk and as beasts of burden. The present number is, I believe, about 400, but the islanders are rather vague as to the exact numbers because the animals wander away to the mountain slopes. It is accustomed to slaughter in the autumn and salt down for winter use. The animals, it is said, are decreasing in size and now weigh about 800 pounds instead of 1400 pounds as formerly. The breed is rather mixed, but they are in fair condition. Several attempts have been made to establish a cattle trade with St. Helena, Madeira and the Cape, but without success. It was in February 1880 that the first shipment was made, 27 bullocks being sent to St. Helena. A second cargo was sent safely, but the next two vessels in which it was hoped to ship cattle were wrecked on the island through careless navigation, as the islanders contend. After that, one or two more shipments were made, but frequent wrecks gave the island a bad name, and all hope of profit was killed by the consequent high freights and insurance. This was a great disappointment to the Tristan folk, because any regular trade with the outside world, however small, would have ensured regular supplies of those commodities which the people are unable to raise for themselves. A further effort was made in 1903 by a Mr. Beatham, one of the settlers who went to Cape Town on the Thrush to secure a schooner for use in the cattle trade, but for some reason he abandoned the scheme and returned to his home in America. The men had five boats made from wreckage and the wood of the stunted island trees and covered with canvas. To the eye of a sailor, they were handy little craft, broader and shorter than a whaleboat, I was not surprised to hear them say that they would venture out to sea as much as 15 miles to visit a passing vessel, and in good weather 
they would cross to Inaccessible and Nightingale Islands to gather albatross eggs. This is practically the only excitement which life on the island affords, except when some of the cattle that have broken away and taken to the mountains become savage and dangerous and have to be shot. Since they sometimes spend two years without seeing a passing vessel, they have to depend to a very great extent on the produce of the island. For food, they have beef, mutton, pork, poultry, milk, butter, eggs, fish and potatoes. Not at all a bad diet, with the exception of bread. All grain, flour and groceries, as well as all clothing, except the socks and stockings, which the women and girls knit, and the moccasins, must be got from ships. Oil is obtained from sea elephants and penguins, and from this candles and a soap of rather poor quality are made. A few words about the social economy of this strange little community will, I think, be interesting. All their pasture land is held as common property until a man expresses the intention of turning a part of it into cultivation when he clears and encloses it. He is then considered the owner of it and may bequeath it to his children, who retain it as their own so long as it is kept under cultivation, but whenever that ceases it is thrown open and again becomes common pasture land. It is agreed that all provisions or any kind of produce supplied to a ship for the general use of the crew and passengers are to be deemed the property of the community, and the proceeds of the sale in clothing, stores or money are equally divided among the families. To prevent this system acting unfairly, each family takes its turn in providing the supplies demanded. When Peter Green succeeded Cotton and Glass, the first of the settlers, he became a kind of patriarchal governor in Tristan, and being a strong-minded old fellow, he took the lead in everything. As a sign of authority, he used to fly the Union Jack over his doorway, and this old sea salt was authorised by the Bishop of St Helena to solemnise marriages, which no doubt he did in a very satisfactory manner. After his death, there was no chief of the settlement, and society resembled the most primitive state of mankind when the family and groups of families preceded the tribal system. It will be remembered that when I landed on Tristan, the islanders stated that no one was chief or governor over them, and doubtless, when any controversy arose, no family would recognise a central authority who might impose his will upon them. But in working practice, Repetto, the Genoese sailor, is the leader, and in American phraseology, what he says goes. He is the only man able to both read and write. Some of the others have been taught to read, but have not yet acquired anything like fluent penmanship. And being a most intelligent, able fellow, he is naturally chosen to represent the views of his people when, as has happened two or three times, they have sent communications to the British government. His position, however, is accidental rather than according to any unwritten law, and strictly speaking, the social status of Tristan de Cunha is a commonwealth of a kind which has been dreamed of by the philosophers of all ages and by our modern socialists. There is no hatred, envy or malice among them. Everything is done for the common good. They render each other brotherly service. They are free from all the vices of civilization. They worship God in a simple way. They live very close to nature, but without pantheistic superstition. Greed and usury are unknown among them. There are no class distinctions, no rich or poor. Truly, on this lonely rock in the South Atlantic, we have a people who belong rather to the pastoral age of the world than to our modern unrestful life, and who, without theory or politics or written laws, have reached that state which has been described by the imaginative writers of all ages, haunted by the thought of the decadent morality of the seething cities 
as the Golden Age or the Millennium. Perhaps it would be good for our theoretical gentlemen to organise an expedition to Tristan to see how their ideas work out in practice. But the thought occurs to me that, however deep their admiration might be, they would not be tempted to share the simple life of the islanders. As Mr Barrow, the clergyman, has said in his report to the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel, his people are remarkable in having no government and no public opinion, no rents and no rates, no regular hours of work, no magistrate and no police, no post, no shops, no drainage, no crops save one, and no frost, but plenty of wind and rain and a fair amount of sun. Their amusements are limited. Occasionally at Christmas and the New Year they play games of cricket, even the women handling the bat and ball with great enjoyment, and the boys find continual amusement in bathing through the summer months, although they have to keep to the pools among the rocks to avoid the sharks which come prowling round the coast. I've said enough to show that in spite of their isolation they are by no means miserable, and that in virtue they find a quiet happiness not to be despised. One thing I must not forget to tell. Agne became a hero and almost a demigod among them because of his accordion. I suppose that never in their lives before had they heard such sweet strains of music as my sailor boy extracted from his instrument for their delectation. It was on board the J.B. Charcot that this scene took place. The islanders swarmed on board one day, eager to see our little ship and to explore all her wonders, and then Agne turned up and gave them of his best. It seemed to bewitch them into a kind of joyful madness. They all began to cut steps in a grotesque way, and Repetto, the tall Italian, amused me vastly by kicking up his heels and dancing a jig on deck. Agne was a proud lad, for never before had he received such an ovation. But he was embarrassed when the delight of the islanders in the wonder-working notes of the accordion became so decisive that they could not bear the thought of living henceforth without its music. They desired to barter with him for the possession of it. Their offers mounted up until Agne might have exchanged his music box for three sheep, a deal which of course Larose was begging him to close upon. The price will not be considered small on either side considering our need for fresh meat and the islanders' scanty property. I think Agne was inclined to accept the offer through sheer good nature, but I had my own comrades to think of, and I knew that they might find the time hanging heavy upon their hands in the loneliness of a long sea voyage, and might give way to melancholy if deprived of such a great source of entertainment. I therefore gave the islanders to understand that no riches they could give us would induce us to part with such a sublime instrument. They yielded to the decision, sadly, but understood the value we placed upon the possession of that accordion, which, I suppose, had been bought by Agne in some seafaring port for a few francs or so. One other detail of the visit of the Tristan folk to the J.B. Charcot does not escape my memory. Many of them were very seasick, for they had never experienced the peculiar sensations of being on board a fishing catch tossing in a choppy sea. Of course, one of the chief objects of our visit to Tristan, apart from the quest of knowledge, was to obtain certain supplies in the way of fresh victuals, and before leaving, we engaged in the serious business of barter. The islanders made curious demands. They had, for example, a passionate desire for nails, however rusty they might be. They coveted our boots and shoes, and offered much wealth in kind for any old shoe leather. The women were clamorous for our shirts, those big, striped, gaudy cotton things which sailors favour. The colours 
fascinated their eyes, and in imagination they thought of their own loveliness when they might stroll upon the cliffs in such gay blouses. So for these things, and a store of gunpowder, of which we had more than enough, tea, cocoa, salt and sugar, dealt out not ungenerously, we bought six sheep, three pigs, some poultry and potatoes. It was with natural regret that we parted from these good, honest, simple folk who had dealt with us most honourably and had entertained us with bounteous hospitality so far as their larder allowed. I paid my respects to Mr and Mrs Barrow, who had been most kind, and there was much handshaking and waving of hands when we rowed off to our boat again from the surf-beaten shore. The J.B. Charcot stood out to sea, and once more we went on light wings down an easterly course, Kogulian bound. Well, that's the end of today's chapter, and we're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.